Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Rick's World Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Corbley, and joining me again today is Alexander Dukalski, who is politics professor in UCD with an emphasis on Asian and authoritarian politics. Professor Dukalski is back to discuss his book, Making a World Safe for Dictatorship. So we ended up at the end of the last show discussing how Xi Jinping is trying to create a cult of personality around himself. Mao Zedong was the first communist leader of China and actively encouraged a cult of personality around his leadership. How successful do you think Mao was in gaining traction across the world uh, with this tactic? And do you think she could ever do the same? It's worth recalling. I mean, there was a pers- global personality cult around Mao yes. uh, in, in the 60s. You know, not, not every, you know, left-leaning group, but I mean, some, some more, more far-left groups, you know, in European cities and uh, um, yeah. American cities and in um, rural areas like Latin America and Nepal really bought into, you know, what Mao was, what Mao was having to say is the kind of romantic revolutionary. So yeah. um, it's not inconceivable that, um, you know, that she, that there could be a personality cult around a Chinese leader like that. Yeah, no, I, I find it insane that Mao is seen as, so, so Mao, Mao is very popular, isn't he, at the moment, in general, in China, would you say? <laughs> There's an ambivalence, an ambivalence about Mao in the party because, you know, he's the founder I mean, one yeah. of the founders of the party, he's the longest serving leader of the party. Yeah. You know, he did a lot of things in his career, but still the official is verdict the, on that. Is the official yeah. one still, I remember hearing that in the Communist Party, it used to be said he was 70% good. And 30% mistakes, you know. Yeah. And um, I mean, that's still that's still the, the, the outlook. I mean, you know, look, at the, at the end of the day, his, his is still the face that sits above Tiananmen Square. His dead body is still the one that is in the mausoleum on Tiananmen Square. So as much as, you know, there's an ambivalence about Mao, he's inextricably tied to the party. So they can't really distance themselves from him too much, right? That's why you see in some of the recent censorship in the academic realm in China, a more sensitivity and censorship around the Maoist era and around anti-rightist campaign in the 1950s, around the Cultural Revolution in the 1960s and 70s. There's a real sensitivity to the Mao. Now, there's also a group of in China that is that wants more Mao. Right? They feel like uh, Chinese leaders have kind of abandoned Maoist principles of egalitarianism and and permanent revolution. And so there is a constituency, pretty loud one in China, pushing for more Maoist policies. Now, the Chinese government also doesn't like that too much because they don't want to be pushed in that direction either. So uh, it's complicated with Mao. Is it true that Xi Jinping himself felt that, so obviously some of the criticisms which leaders after Stalin gave to Stalin that she sought that as a mistake and one of the reasons for the downfall of the Soviet Union and that he himself wants to be kind of pro-Mao nearly because w- once information gets bad that one of these guys is bad, then it's kind of open season on them all, on the party itself. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the, you know, the Soviet Union distancing itself from Stalin in, in started in 1956 um, was a big moment in the communist world. Yeah. They had all these little, so-called little Stalins in other countries who you know, they had based their legitimacy upon ruling in a Stalin-like fashion. Yeah. And so now all of a sudden the carpet's kind of pulled out from under them. So they had to decide, 
to go one way or the other to either really lean into the personality cult like North Korea did, like China did at the time, uh, Albania, or kind of distance yourself and try to follow the Soviet lead like like some other East, like most Eastern European states did. Look, you know, the, the thing with, with Xi Jinping and with the Chinese Communist Party generally is they studied the collapse of the Soviet Union a lot. Yeah. They really, they mobilized think tanks and universities and party schools and researchers to figure out what happened so that they don't collapse also. And, you know, they concluded that having a too rigid of an ideology was a problem. They concluded that having a stagnant economy was a problem. Mm. They concluded that not giving people rising living standards was a problem. So these are all kind of lessons they drew that they're trying to adapt their own rule to avoid the same fate. You know, a lot of people have commented that Xi Jinping is, you know, has a Maoist kind of streak to him. Yeah. Right? He's, he's uh revolution you know he's, he's really interested in the revolution and in really reinvigorating marxism and egalitarianism these kinds of things and there's some truth to that but the the main difference between mao and xi jinping is that remember mao tried essentially to destroy the party right in the 19 in the cultural revolution it was all about attacking the party and bombarding the headquarters and creating a sort of permanent revolution even if it meant party cadres, you know, we're going to be killed. Xi Jinping is not up for that. He wants a very strong party, right? He wants the party to be much more in control um, and is not comfortable with the kind of, he would not be comfortable with that kind of chaos from, from the masses. So there's some similarities, but, the, but there's some firm differences too, I think. I would also say on that, Mao believed in collectivization, like obviously the, the Great Leap Forward, was a massive catastrophe in farming and that was that was purely from an ideological point of view but i would be surprised if xi jinping would try something that kind of lack of a better term nearly communist idea how does the kind of the communist party kind of resolve itself and what to me just looks like kind of state capitalist when it's officially communist and are are we seeing maybe them at least trying sorry i'm not saying at least because it's probably not a good thing but are they are they trying to say, oh, we are in stuff like more of an attack on the wealthy now within China? And obviously Jack Ma, that whole story, was he abducted? We don't really know what the hell happened to him. So do you think maybe he is going to try and even the wealth equality by basically taking the rich in China down a couple of pegs? That sure seems like that's what's happening, is that yeah. taking, particularly in the tech sector, taking some of these tech giants who've, who've gained, you know, some of the richest people on the planet um, and, and redistributing or reigning in their earnings somehow. Now, you know, this is being done in kind of typical one-party fashion where it's, it's murky, it's not really governed by rule of law. It's, as you know, like nobody really is totally clear what happened to Jack Ma. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's a much easier way to do that would be to like readjust the tax code or, you know, I don't know, something, you know, that would be, that would be a way that a a kind of Western democracy would do it, you know, but uh, this is, you know, more of a campaign style of, of uh, single party regimes. Um, Yeah. So I'm going to probably change shift a little bit here. There was a line in it. I think, I think it went something along this lines of, although a lot of these dictatorships don't necessarily care what, another country is like they don't necessarily hate democracies but they believe that ultimately it's probably easier for themselves to stay a dictatorship if the country next to them or if other countries aren't democracies and therefore they maybe at the start they don't necessarily explicitly try to get other countries to be dictatorships but over time they kind of go that way nearly by necessity sorry no that's a bit of a long-winded way of yeah, yeah, so, yeah it's kind of like 
you know, it's almost like countries prefer their neighbors to be politically similar in some yeah, way. Sorry, right? that's a more so, phrase. Um, yeah, well, you know, it's look, it's it's and it's not a it's not a hard and fast rule, I don't think, right? But you know, I think that you know there's some affinity and similarity in dealing with a political system that that looks like yours and is similar to yours. And you know, you can it's it's easier to navigate. You know, in terms of China, I mean on, on in their neighborhood, I think what they value most most of all would be stability. Yeah. So that's why, you know, I think you know, Chinese, you know, Chinese elites and the Chinese public, you know, look at North Korea with a little bit of frustration and um you know, they brought North Korean leaders to to China many times to try to get them to you know, introduce Chinese style reforms, you know, what you were referring to earlier, the kind of state capitalist or hybrid sort of communist yeah, capitalist yeah. model in North Korea, you know, it's much more cautious about it. But at the end of the day, they're not going to push a state like North Korea to do too much because they want stability um, and they want predictability. And, and so that's, I think, their, their overriding sort of concern. You know, look, <laughs> the Chinese um, diplomats invited the Taliban, I mean, quite quickly, you know, even I think even before they'd consolidated power or, or taken power in Afghanistan, um, because, you know, look, they're the next government and they wanted to be able to, you know, engage in stability and maintenance with them. The amount of money China spends on basically publicity in other countries and around the world, I myself have never really noticed it as much, maybe anecdotally, as I would notice uh, Russia today frequently, I suppose, and people sharing things at me and saying, oh, look at this. And I'm like, that's Russia today. Get that out of my way kind of thing. Um, but yeah, can can you talk maybe a little bit about some of these organizations they have and maybe how much effect do they have in, say, promoting a, a positive Chinese or if not a positive, basically smearing states like Germany or the US or kind of other traditional liberal democracies? I guess I should say, you know, you're, you're right to point out that China invests a lot in external propaganda. Right? Yeah. Whether it's Xinhua, People's Daily, CGTN, just China Global Television, yeah. um, China Radio International. And they have a lot of fellowship programs to bring f- foreign journalists from the developing world to China to become more friendly to China. Um, so they, they invest a lot of money. Of course, China's budget lines are not always clear, so we don't we don't totally know how much, but it's a lot. You know, part of the issue, I think, is that um, the Chinese government looks at the global media sphere and thinks that they thinks that it's it's uh, doesn't punch its weight. Basically, it's not able to get China, you know, a Chinese perspective, which when the government says Chinese perspective, they mean Chinese government perspective yeah, yeah. Um, into um, into official discourse. Um, so they do this in a variety of ways. One is Xinhua, which is again the main state's news agency, functions functions as a wire service. So that means newspapers and news websites can subscribe to Xinhua and pull stories from it and run it in the newspaper, just like the Associated Press or Reuters, or indeed um, Russia has one as well called TASS. And the idea there is that they would pull, the, those, those news outlets would pull stories about China from Xinhua, which would then be, you know, pro-China, right? I mean, like, they're yeah. not going to be critical of, of, of the party. And so a colleague of mine and I did some quantitative text analysis on Xinhua and how they present various issues. And yeah, I mean, China is presented much more positively than other countries. The United States is portrayed negatively in China, sorry, in Japan and Korea, for example, China is presented as a really benign, friendly neighbor. And so it's definitely, even though it's 
tries to market itself and brand itself as like a serious sober news agency, it's got its own agenda that, that filters into um, international media. I mean, one of the interesting things about wire services is that they don't appear to you as Xinhua, right? They yeah. appear in your local paper. Maybe there's a byline that says Xinhua, but most people don't really know what that is. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, so in that way, you know, um, a Chinese government perspective can be introduced into your media diet, sometimes without you even really realizing it. Now, yeah. most most newspapers in the Western world don't really use Xinhua as a news service, but but those in, in developing world often do, in part because it's cheaper. Right. Um, it's, it's offered at a subsidized price. I suppose, yeah, this may be a bit of a speculative question, but I remember when I watched Neil Ferguson's China Triumph and Turmoil, on the last episode of that, it kind of, to me, it looked very much like he was saying the next generation of China are actually, they're, they're probably even far more nationalistic than maybe their parents were. Do you think China is going to get to be a more aggressive country in the coming decades and that we might even look at this kind of point of Chinese and uh, Xi Jinping and stuff is maybe kind of tamer than what was to come, or do you think things will get? Like, I know I know it's impossible to answer, but what's yeah, your? It's, an, it's a it's a tough question to answer, and I don't want to be in the prediction business because then somebody will listen to this and yeah. prove me wrong. But you know, I'll say a few things. One is that nationalism has certainly increased. Yeah. Partly that's by design. So yep. after the Tiananmen Square massacre um, in 1989, Deng Xiaoping, who was the kind of paramount leader at the time, one of the lessons he drew from that is that ideological education was not sufficiently strong and there needed to be more instruction in patriotism. And so there was something called a patriotic education campaign, which basically introduced more nationalism and patriotism into, into school curricula. And um, you see that that's continued, basically, and intensified. So you do see more nationalistic attitudes. The question is how much the party is encouraging that and how much the party is reflecting that. Um, So there is is a contingent in China that that wants China to take a more aggressive stance, to like stand up to the West and say, no, we're stronger. You know, you guys are... You know, your, your day is past, but there are others that are more pragmatic or maybe even more interested in cooperation. In terms of military conflict, you know, this is tricky. So there's one school of thought that says that China is almost inevitably going to have more conflict with the rest of the world, not because it's China or because it's anything particular to China, but because as countries become more powerful, their interests expand Yeah, as they're as their interests expand, so do the things they need to protect. As the things they need to protect expand, that can come into conflict with other actors. Right? Yeah. So, you know, I think you're, you're going to see, you know, regardless of kind of, you know, nationalism angle, you're going to see more of China's interests bumping up against other powerful states. And whether that leads to military conflict or not, I don't know. You know, the most, you know, proximate issue on which a military conflict could be fought is, is over Taiwan. Luckily, Cooler had to prevail for several decades now, and I hope we, you know, I think, hope that continues, but, uh, but that would be the most proximate issue. Yeah, and I think finally, just maybe in a bit of a pessimistic manner, I suppose with the, with the failure of the US to convert 
likes of Afghanistan and Iraq into functioning democracies and kind of the turmoil of the last so many years, do you foresee dictatorship becoming more the norm and maybe even edging in? Do, do you see any any scope for maybe democracies to start expanding again? Or do, do you believe that these tactics are actually going to very much cement dictatorships as just kind of the norm and plenty of them going forward? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a good question. It's a big question, but I don't think dictatorship's going away <clears throat> ever. Yeah. Um, in not, in our lifetimes or after our lifetimes, it'll yeah. always be with us. You know, it's worth keeping in mind that for most of human history, most people have not lived under democratic systems. So in that sense, authoritarianism has been the norm of humanity. Yeah. I mean, um, democracy is kind of the, the aberration. So it's worthy, you know, it's, it's democracy is something that needs to be protected and, and, and nurtured. In terms of, you know, the United States and its image in the world, you know, of course, the United States has, uh, I think, taken an image hit in recent years. I mean, the Trump presidency, um, aside from, I think, Israel, Hungary, and maybe one or two other countries that are kind of Poland, um, that, that are more conservative, basically, you know, the U.S. image took a hit under Trump. And uh, certainly the, the images coming out of Afghanistan are disturbing for a variety of reasons. But look, the U.S. for a long period of time has had a self-corrective uh, capacity for self-correction. And, you know, its material capabilities are still the strongest in the world. And so I don't think it's, it's kind of going away anytime soon. And it's also worth noting, I mean, you know, that there are good stories about democracy. Right? So there was just an election in Zambia. In, in which um, it was feared that there was going to be an authoritarian overthrow and actually that opposition candidate won in a fair and square and was allowed to take off this. So, um, you know, it's, it's worth um, paying attention also to the, the kind of positive stories about democracy. It's not all doom and gloom, although there are a lot of challenges. That's, I didn't actually know that about Zambia, but that, that is actually, geez, I could kind of do with a positive news story and what's not being overly positive. Do you think actually COVID-19 and the fact that it most likely did come out of China. We don't really know in what capacity, but do you think that will be, I think it was actually, I know referred to Niall Ferguson already, but I think he said he thinks it might be their Chernobyl moment in terms of time that they tried to cover up something that just went drastically wrong. Will it, something as big as that kind of stop them from becoming a global hegemon just because they made too many enemies and stuff, true things like that? Um, well, there are two things. So one is that certainly China's image has taken a global hit because of COVID. Survey evidence bears that out. And some colleagues of mine and I did a quantitative analysis of global media. And China was portrayed more negatively in the media, kind of across the across the board due to COVID being, you know, originating in China. Yeah. So clearly it's an image hit. Now, in terms of it as being kind of a Chernobyl moment, I mean, there's a lot of commentary about that in early 20. 20 about you know this being possibly the thing that could, that could undo China. The thing is, you know, chi- uh, you know, ch- China also has a, a capacity for for self-correction to some degree. And in crisis moments like that, a smart single-party system with a good bureaucracy can actually do a lot. That's you know, can, can do a lot to put something like COVID under under control, particularly when there aren't pesky you know, courts challenging <laughs> rulings or opposition lawmakers giving you a hard time, um, they can really clamp down, right? The story that China tells about COVID is one in which they basically won. Right. And the West is the one that looks 
<laughs> looks like it's it might be the West's Chernobyl moment, right? right yeah. you, still have, you know, you still have tons of cases daily, and in China, you know, they've had it under control for a long period of time, right? Now you can always say like, there's you know, take Chinese um, statistics with a grain of salt, yeah. but well, we haven't had evidence of like mass outbreaks, whereas in yeah. you know, in the U.S., I mean, you're still seeing thousands of cases right even even here in ireland it's 2000 cases a day in our tiny countries so i think on on covid you know even though china has taken an image hit um i think from their perspective they have a good story to tell actually is there are there things you admire about china or things you like about china or maybe have been a bit all doom and gloom like i think in many ways like they have built very impressive cities they've built impressive roads like these are these are good things i suppose um is there anything you like to say about that or yeah, I mean, look, so if you study the politics of a place, you know, it's, you know, no matter what place it is, it's, it's not always easy to have a positive, <laughs> a positive disposition because politics is always a, a murky thing. And we're always, especially if, if like myself, if you're interested in human rights and state repression and authoritarianism, you know, you kind of gravitate towards topics that are, that are by their nature kind of um, difficult to approve of. But no, I find China endlessly fascinating. When I go there, I find uh, call, working with colleagues extremely enriching. People are, you know, uh, the people that, that, uh, that I work with on occasion there are really smart. Um, our families become friends. It's, it's great. You know, that's, uh, there's, no, um, there's no doubt about that. But of course, when you study authoritarianism, you study the, the naked use of power. <laughs> So it's not always easy to keep a, keep, you know, keep a positive attitude about, about things. Thanks so much for being on the show today, Alex. Uh, really appreciate your contribution. And I just know this is a book that we're going to be hearing a lot more about in the future. It, it really, really gets to the main points about authoritarianism and how it works. I know I'll be I'll be sharing so many extracts with my students on this one. Thank you. So for the benefit of the listener, this interview was recorded last summer. Many things have changed since then, uh, most notably obviously the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So I mentioned the TV station Russia Today or RT in that interview, which was the main foreign news source of Russia over the last few decades. It's actually been taken off the airways in most European countries and has been completely taken off YouTube, at least Irish YouTube anyway, which is huge because it used to get massive viewing figures on YouTube. Since probably the fall of the Berlin Wall, We've had, when I say we in Europe, we can see a lot more news sources from all around the world and there's been maybe a more laissez-faire attitude to what news sources we view. And I think the, the end of the Cold War is an apt analogy or an apt thing to say here because this might be beginning of a new Cold War with things like Russia Today taken off the air. So getting back to China... Most commentators are saying that China will fall along with Russia in this possible new Cold War, just in terms of geographical location and probably a bigger fact that neither like democracy in any way, shape or form. But 
I think how China proceed in relation to Taiwan, whether they take over Taiwan or not, will come down a lot to how Russia fare out. If Russia take it over and ultimately it's seen as a success for Russia, then I think we will be seeing China looking more and more over to Taiwan and testing the waters there. Whereas if this does go badly for Russia and they maybe have to retreat, or if it goes terribly for them and Putin gets basically deposed, then we might see the Chinese revert back to maybe a status quo in which they kind of take the point of view of, we won't interfere with other countries if they don't interfere with us, which I, I hope that's the case and I hope that's what happens. On a separate note, I don't think we learn enough about China in our general education system, at least from Ireland's point of view, or just about how much we see China on the news. Their history is absolutely fascinating and just some crazy, crazy events have happened in just the last 200 years. So just take some examples, like in 1842, the British fought a, a war with China known as the Opium War, in which the British essentially fought to allow themselves to continue to sell large quantities of heroin to the Chinese people. Then, as if that wasn't crazy enough, in 1852, the Taiping Rebellion happened. In this revolution, a man, and forgive my pronunciation, by the name of Hong Zhutrang, failed a what was a very, very difficult civil service exam, went home, had a dream in which there were some older men knighting him with a sword. After this, he read a Bible which was given to him, and then he believed that he was the brother of Jesus Christ. He ended up leading a rebellion against the Qin dynasty, which was unpopular with many of the people as it was not ruled by the large Han majority. And it is said that roughly 20 million people died during this rebellion. Then as we get to the 20th century, during the Second World War, Imperial Japan invaded China. During World War II, it is said that, uh, or estimated that around 20 million Chinese people died. And there were some particularly brutal events, such as the rape of Nanking, in which uh, 150,000 Chinese soldiers were said to be killed before 20,000 Chinese women were said to be raped en masse. It is a very, very uh, sore bone of contention between the two countries still to this day. Then after China was freed from Japan, there was a civil war between the Communist Party and Chiang Kai-shek's regime. Uh, the Communist Party ended up winning that with Chiang Kai-shek's regime going to what is now today Taiwan, which uh, is the cause of the conflicts there. And since the communists have been in charge of China, there's been lots of crazy incidents as well, such as the Great Leap Forward in the 1950s. This was a agricultural plan planned by the Communist Party and it failed abysmally. It is estimated that up to 40 million people may have died during this. It's an event that very few people know anything about, even though it's one of the greatest human catastrophes in history. And even in China, nearly nobody's allowed to study it to this day. After this event, uh, many intellectuals questioned Chairman Mao's rulership of China. And 
essentially anybody who did question it ended up being killed in what was known as the Cultural Revolution, in which the young people of China were given little red books from Mao and were basically told to mock and ultimately kill anybody who questioned his leadership. This was a very, very uh, brutal affair. After Chairman Mao died, a man by the name of Deng Xiaoping took over and it was under him and subsequent rulers which China has industrialized at the fastest rate in history, which is an event we also should pay great attention to because it's great that China has wonderful buildings and cities which are the marvel of much of the world and this should be something which should be celebrated just as many of its darker periods in history should also be studied as a lesson to what can go wrong. For sources on China I would recommend watching Neil Ferguson's documentary China Triumph and Turmoil. You can probably find it on YouTube or possibly 4OD as it was originally filmed for Channel 4. Then there's also Henry Kissinger's book on China and of course uh, Alex Dukalski's Making a World Safe for Dictatorships which is a brilliant look into how dictatorships operate today. And finally just to get to some of my own thoughts about China as a country, although it's officially a communist country, I believe it takes most of its influence from Confucius. Now Confucius believed that people should largely know their place in society and that order must come before everything else. Uh, I will yield to actual Confucius scholars who know much more about him than I do, but from what I've read this is the gist of what I can take out of it. I believe this somewhat explains why the Chinese people are naturally quite sceptical of things such as journalistic freedoms and as we talked about today that is, that is quite a negative. Uh, on the other hand, this has at times made the Chinese people naturally a bit more conflict averse and China doesn't have as much of a history of imperialism compared to many other countries that you may study. Overall I think it's a good thing that China has gotten richer and that its people are well educated but its newfound power and strengths along with its total mistrust of democracy make it a challenging country in terms of whether it will make the world a better place and especially whether it will make the world a freer place which is not in its core objectives. So thank you once again for listening to my podcast and remember it's always better to know more about the world.